This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Bugle, The Johan Hari Podcast, The BBC News Quiz, The Young Turks, Counterspin, and Media Matters, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Uh, In the 2000s, there have been two amazing stories about voting in the great state of Florida. One of those stories is very well known. The other one is barely known at all, but has just become really, really important. Uh, The first one was in the year 2000, when this happened. The nail-bitingly close race between Al Gore and George W. Bush resulted in the race being called and then uncalled, and then a cacophonous, disorganized, politicized, intimidated counting process was ultimately called off in what was considered to be one of the most anomalous and partisan U.S. Supreme Court decisions of the modern era. And so George W. Bush became the president-elect. And then a bunch of newspapers from Florida and nationally decided to commission a study. They hired a company to count all the votes that had been cast in that election in Florida. By then it was more than a year after the fact, but the study showed that if you did count all the votes in Florida that year, Al Gore won. Incidentally, but by then it was 11 months into George W. Bush's presidency. In 2004, when President Bush ran for re-election against Senator John Kerry, Mr. Bush clearly won Florida. In fact, he won it handily. He won by five points. The electoral map of Florida that year looked like this. Pretty red, right? But then in 2008, the second amazing Florida voting story of the 2000s unfolded to much less national attention. And that story is that between the election in 2004 and the election in 2008... The Democratic Party figured out how to win Florida again. It showed on Election Day when the iconic swing state of Florida had swung decisively by almost a quarter million votes. There was no nail-biting about Florida in 2008. The state was called essentially as soon as the polls closed. Barack Obama had won the state and won it big. And mainly, the Democratic Party achieved that over time in the lead-up to that election by registering a ton of people to vote in Florida. In Florida, in the run-up to the presidential election, Democrats registered more than twice as many new voters as Republicans did. The Democrats' registration edge over Republicans in Florida in 2008 was 660,000 people, up from 280,000 in 2006. By Election Day 2008, thanks to voter registration drives, there were 660,000 more Democrats registered to vote in Florida than Republicans. You want to know why it was not close in Florida in 2008? Look. Look at this. Here's how first-time voters in 2008 in Florida cast their ballots. Newly registered first-time voters went for President Obama by a 19-point margin. Clearly this must be stopped. And so now the Republican legislature in the great state of Florida is fast-tracking a massive overhaul of Florida's elections laws. A massive overhaul that would make voter registration drives difficult to impossible to carry out in that state. No more new voters. Not with those kind of results. Republicans can't afford it. If you want to get people registered to vote in Florida right now, you can do so without much hullabaloo. This is what the League of Women Voters does. It's what church groups do. It's what Cub Scouts do. It's what college students do. It's an accessible, across-the-board civic activity like it always has been. Register to vote. Register in either party. Register as an independent. Does not matter. But register. Voter registration drives. If you want to do a voter registration drive, you just pick up a stack of voter registration applications. 
Get your card table. Set up outside the grocery store. Let people fill them out and then go turn them in. That's how it works now. Florida Republicans want to change the law. So if you want to register people to vote, if you want to even volunteer with a group that is registering people to vote, this means you, Timmy the Boy Scout, you're going to have to register with the state in advance. You have to register as a citizen deputy assistant voter registrar or something. I don't know what they're going to call it, but you have to register with the state in advance if you want to volunteer to work at voter registration drives under this Republican proposal that's moving through the Florida legislature. Also, you have to take part in some as-yet-unknown electronic voter information database upload system, Timmy. And if you don't get those voter registration forms submitted from the people you've gotten registered within 48 hours of the time they have signed them, not only are those voter registration forms automatically invalid, but you, Timmy the Cub Scout, you will be charged fines of at least $50 and up to $1,000 for each application you turn in past the 48-hour deadline. If you're Timmy's den chief, would you let his Boy Scout troop register voters with that hanging over your head? This seems to me to be designed to end voter registration drives in Florida. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, which is a nonpartisan organization that studies this stuff, community-based voter registration drives are particularly important for low-income citizens, students, young voters in other words, uh, and minorities. Those are the people who tend to get registered at voter registration drives. So those are the people whose voter registration, Florida Republicans' new law, would have the effect of kiboshing on a large scale. Here's how those groups voted in 2008. Low-income Florida voters went for Barack Obama in 2008, 66% to McCain's 33%. Young Florida voters aged 18 to 24 voted for Mr. Obama, 60% to John McCain's 39%. Latinos in Florida voted for Mr. Obama, 57% to John McCain's 42%. Black voters in Florida went for Mr. Obama 96% to John McCain's, is that right? Oh yeah, 4%. If you are a Republican in Florida, wouldn't it be great to just be able to reduce the number of those people who are registered to vote, to reduce the number of people who get registered in that way by reducing the means by which they get registered? The Obama re-election campaign has posted online a new strategy video. They say it's their strategy for how they plan to win re-election for President Obama in this next election. They posted it online yesterday. President Obama's uh, campaign manager is Jim Messina. You can see him there. In the video, he explains that the first thing, the first priority, step one of what President Obama's campaign needs to do to win re-election in 2012, step one, what do they need to do first? Expand the electorate. Meaning, register people to vote who aren't already registered. How are they going to do that in Florida? As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Lisa, the wall. 
British democracy news now, and well, we've seen how much Britain likes being told where it stands by the royal family. <laughs> but I think we're also about to see in the in the coming week how little we care about democracy. There's a referendum on whether to replace our traditional first past the post electoral system with uh, an alternative vote system, which basically is replacing something that is grotesquely unfair with something that is marginally less unfair. And this. Uh, has pitted the two sides of the um, the coalition government against each other, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. And the level of debate on the alternative vote, John, has been about the same level of debates you have with your dog when you are training it to shit outside. <laughs> Very basic and driven exclusively by self-interest. <laughs> as a democracy fan, John, you know, you know I love a bit of democracy uh, as much as the next man, but it has been monumentally depressing. It has been sub-infantile... Uh, jibes, lies, and bullshit. And th they should leave that kind of shit to us, frankly. I was just over in England, and the British public do have an opportunity, a major opportunity, to fundamentally change the voting system. And it seems from the tone of the debate that uh, they're going to seize that opportunity like a child seizing a piece of overboiled broccoli <laughs> with suspicion, distaste, and eventually complete refusal to engage with it. <laughs> The, the tone is really depressing. I, I only dipped my toes into its fetid swamp for a few <laughs> days last week, and already I feel like my soul has come out in a rash. The decision is between staying, as you say, with the first-past-the-post system of voting or switching to the alternative vote, which ranks candidates in order of preference. And correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but the campaign surrounding AV has been scummier than an ill-attended pond. <laughs> It's been, it's been done. The, the main thrust of the No to AV campaign has been that uh, alternative vote is simply too complicated, that the British public, no longer, <laughs> after decades of underfunding of state education, we no longer have the mental capacity to think of things as number one and number two. We, we simply, we can't be trusted with it, John. Plus, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it, it, we have trouble enough as it is just writing X. You know, to have to write more than one number is... I mean, that, there's no way we can do that, John. In, in fact, I think what this week has proved is that we should ditch democracy altogether and get, go back to absolute monarchy. <laughs> I think we are only happy when someone in a crown is threatening to chop our f***ing heads off. <laughs> the lowest point of the No to AV campaign uh, was that when the No voters actually took out a billboard arguing that AV would be more expensive to run and they did this by showing a soldier in battle dress with the slogan, he needs bulletproof vests, not an alternative voting system. Say no to spending £250 million on AV. Our country can't afford it. Well, that is 11 different kinds of f***ing nauseating, Andy. <laughs> because that soldier does indeed need bulletproof vests. They're right there. I'll give them that. But that is very much the beginning and the end of that particular <laughs> argument. There is nothing more to say after that. You definitely can't use that soldier's need as emotional blackmail for a completely unrelated discussion. <laughs> because if all gloves are going to come off, if we're now just going to use soldiers as props in arguments, then you can basically use that billboard to win any debate. He needs bulletproof vests, not a new swimming pool for St. Bede's School District. <laughs> he needs bulletproof vests, not the two of us going to see Scream 4 tonight, dear. <laughs> he needs bulletproof vests, not me having to do a double shift on Saturday. <laughs> he needs bulletproof vests, not a dialysis machine for some kid he's never met who probably <laughs> won't ever amount to anything. <laughs> the concern is, as well, that May the 5th, 
this coming Thursday is going to see an embarrassingly low turnout in this vote. And if so, it really will be an impressive demonstration of apathy from the British public. The British public may not be bothered to vote for how they're going to vote for people that they will not be bothered to vote for. <laughs> As you watch uh, the state of the world, John, and the disenfranchised, oppressed people of the Arab world, heroically trying to throw off the yoke of subjugation imposed on them by a mixture of state oppression and international political expedience, and then contrast that with five minutes of any discussion of the alternative vote referendum, or David Cameron, for example, in uh, the House of Commons this week, uh, saying, calm down, dear, to a female MP from uh, the Labour Party, quoting a sexist jibe from an eye-gougingly annoying car insurance advertising campaign from a few years ago, over and over again, as if to ensure that the message reached his public that, for all his public polish, he still has it in him to behave like a thoroughbred tool. Uh, and oh, and when, then when you read that the turnout for the referendum in London is predicted to be about around 15%, the thought does arise, frankly, if we swapped systems with these Arab countries, who would be more unhappy, John? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I, I, th- I, think, I think the British public are absolutely psychologically made for dictatorship. Mm-hmm. I think we, we like not having to think about uh, the, these choices. And that's why I think why... why the first part of the post will probably stay because it maximises the chance of you not voting for the winning party. Uh, generally, the governments in general elections win uh, quite a sizable majority with around 25% or less of the public votes given a low turnout. And this means that three quarters of the British public at any time can justifiably whinge about the government. And this is what we want, John. We don't want fair representation, we want the opportunity to complain for five years. This week, I'm going to do something strange. The economy is bleeding by the side of the road. We're bombing another oil-rich Muslim country. The planet is hotter today than it has been for three million years. And I want to talk to you about why we should vote to change the voting system here in Britain next week. Now, please, wait, 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 wait. Don't lapse into a coma. Stab cigarettes into your arm to stay conscious. Stay with me. We only have to do this and we only get to do this once in a generation. Today, I've got a member of parliament I didn't vote for. So do you, in all likelihood. So do 66% of us. Now, at first glance, that seems impossible in a democracy. How can a huge majority of us end up with an MP we didn't vote for? Isn't the whole point of democracy that the majority prevails? Well, not under our current voting system, which is called first past the post. Next week, we're being offered an alternative, which is called the alternative vote. The difference is really simple. Under first past the post, you put a cross next to the person you want as your MP. Under the alternative vote, you number them one, two, three. 
So under AV, I could express my desire, which is for the Greens first, Labour second, and so on, for as many parties as I want to give my approval to. Now, you might think, why does such a small tweak make a difference? The best way to think about it is to look at the X factor. In the first week of the live performances, you've got, whatever it is, 12 candidates, including uh, the poor weeping girl groups who are always doomed to be tossed out at once only to scream into the camera, you haven't heard the last of us. Uh, the votes of the public are naturally divided across these 12 candidates. So obviously nobody gets majority support. The most popular candidate at that first stage might be 20 or 30% if they're lucky. Now, if the X Factor declared that person to be the winner of the entire show there and then, it would be a first-past-the-post election, and it would be an exact replica of how we select our MPs now. But most of us would think that was a bit weird, not least Simon Cowell, because he'd make a lot less money, but set that to one side. Should somebody who enthuses only a small but vocal minority win outright, even though most people are against them? It would obviously change the result of the show, producing a winner who would satisfy a lot fewer people. This year it might have been Adam Grinshaw or One Direction. Now that would delight a minority, uh, especially if it One Direction, the minority of uh, screaming middle-aged women and paedophiles, but it would bemuse the rest. That, that's why we're the only country in the entire EU that chooses MPs this way. Now, there is another way on offer next week. It's to keep knocking out the most unpopular contestant in round after round until you finally get a winner who has more than 50% support and can then be drowned in confetti and Cheryl Cole's hairspray until Simon Cowell ditches their contract six months later. That's how they do it on The X Factor and that's how AV works. Now, obviously, you can't force people to traipse to the polling booths for 12 weeks in a row. So you condense it down by getting them to list the order in which they like the candidates. So if you choose the political equivalent of Cher Lloyd and she gets knocked out, they transfer your vote to your next favourite, Rebecca Ferguson, until someone wins by getting a majority. This system has a series of obvious advantages. At the moment, your MP can appeal to a small minority and win the election. Under AV, she can't do that. She'll have to work much harder to appeal to a majority of people in your area. In addition, you can express your political desires much more clearly. For example, I want a government that is more left-wing and more green than either Labour or the Tories are offering. But at every election under first-past-the-post, I have no way of saying that. If I vote green, I risk splitting the centre-left vote and letting a Tory win, the result I want to happen least. So I have to vote Labour, even though it's a pretty uncomfortable fit, especially at the height of new Labour. Under AV, you and I can express our views much more clearly. Now... It's actually a pretty small and moderate change. It's not the bigger change that I'd like to see, which we'll get to in a minute. Most of the elections since the war would have ended with the same Prime Minister, although according to Professor John Curtis's calculations, in 1997 the Lib Dems would have replaced the Tories as the official opposition. And in 2010, at the last election, there would have been an option to have a Liberal-Labour coalition that had a majority of eight. So, what's the case against AV? It's pretty hard to state it clearly because the No to AV campaign has run the weirdest political campaign in living memory. Their central argument is that the British people are too thick to understand the argument I've just made. Their election broadcasts and their website is filled with just puzzled voters who are left helpless at the idea of counting one, two, three in the ballot box and end up raging in incomprehension and begging to be allowed to just draw a cross. 
they then fall into such confusion that they accidentally elect a fascist. In a way, I kind of almost admire the boldness of this political message. Vote no to AV because you and your friends are clearly brain damaged. But when this argument didn't gain much traction, they switched to another one. The next sentence isn't a joke. You should check out their website to see it for yourself. The No campaign said that voting for AV would kill premature babies and soldiers in Afghanistan. Honestly, they bought ads showing, that these, showing these vulnerable groups in pictures and claiming AV would take £250 million directly from their incubators and their body armour and squander it on counting votes. There's only one problem. The figure is completely made up. Where did it come from? Well, they claimed that AV requires voting machines that cost £120 million, even though Australia has AV and counts its ballots by hand. Then they included the cost of the referendum itself, which is obviously going to happen now whether you vote no or not, and is therefore irrelevant. From there, the no campaigns arguments just got weirder and weirder. They claimed that AV gives some people two or three votes. Well, how? If I go into a shop to buy a Mars bar and they've run out so I get my second preference, a bounty, do I leave with two chocolate bars? Obviously not. Then they claimed, in Saeed Avasi's words, quote, a vote for AV is a, quote, a vote for the BNP, end quote. Now, this can only be consciously dishonest. In reality, the BNP is campaigning against AV because they know it totally kills their chances. They might conceivably get 25% in a seat one day, but they'll never get the 50% required in AV. This is the importing of the most kind of crude, Karl Rove-style tactics to British politics. Now, all this is a shame because there's actually a real criticism of AV that's gone unheard. It's that it doesn't go nearly far enough. Nick Clegg once called it a miserable little compromise, and there's some truth in that. Ironically enough, AV would not be my first preference for a new system. The biggest problem with our electoral system is that it isn't proportional, and I have to take a second to explain that. In Britain today... We've got a centre-left majority who want this to be a country with European-level taxes, European standard public services and European-level equality. We've actually had this for a very long time. You've got to remember, even at the height of Thatcherism, 56% of people voted for parties committed to higher taxes and higher public spending. But the centre-left vote is split between several parties, while the right-wing vote clusters around the Conservatives. So under first-past-the-post, they get to rule and dominate out of all proportion to their actual support, and they get to drag most of us in a direction we don't want to go. That's why the Tories are united in supporting the current system, and why they're throwing a fortune at preventing this change. Now, AV takes a very small step towards dealing with this, and so I'm going to vote yes in the referendum, but it doesn't get us very far. As his last act in public life, Roy Jenkins drew up a plan for a system that takes all the best of AV and then makes it even better. It's called AV+. Now, I can sense that you're drooping. Please stab another cigarette into your arm uh, to stay awake just for one more minute. Here's how it works. You vote in your constituency by AV to get your MP, who will now have majority support. Then, and this is the plus part, they add up the vote nationally as well and they act to correct any weird lumps in the outcome. So imagine the Greens got 15% of the vote, but only 2% of the seats, which is quite likely under both First Past the Post and AV. The Greens would then be given extra top-up MPs to make sure they had about 15% of the actual MPs to make sure Parliament represented the will of the people. So you get the best of both worlds. You get a stronger constituency link and stronger proportionality. Now, if you vote for AV, it's a small step towards that. It's a step in the right direction. If you vote against AV, 
you kill the possibility of that really good system, AV+, for generations. Ultimately, it comes down to this. On May the 5th, you can vote no with David Cameron, the BNP, and a campaign that thinks you're too thick to count to three. Or you can vote yes with all the progressive forces in British politics, massed together to move democracy forward a few small inches. What's your preference? Radio Daylight, Radio Darkness Radio Daylight, Radio Darkness Show me something new Show me something new Show me something new Show me something new AV or not AV, that is the question. Uh, And also, in the interests of balance, could you mark your answer in order of preference, please? I'm not really qualified to answer this question as I come from a council estate background and according to the No campaign, anyone who is working class will not be able to understand a system of putting one, two and three next to the people you want because we're only peasants and we can't count. But yeah, it's the Lib, Dem and Tory split over the AV vote, which I wish I'd, you know, most of life is first past the post. I could have done with an alternative vote at school when I was trying to lose my virginity up to the age of about 22. (laughs) You get to say to girls, you can either meet with me or with Spotty Derrick who plays Dungeons and Dragons, and just forcing them to choose between one of the two, because that's essentially what AV is. But, uh, but people who can't get it, it essentially works exactly like the X Factor. It's the same model. Instead of voting for a winner in one go, you all vote, and then the weakest one gets progressively eliminated. You know, Osborne and uh, Cameron were the first ones to complain if uh, Aidan Grimshaw had won the X Factor uh, first past the post system. There'd have been outrage. Do you well, think, though, that when you vote, you'd have to have that noise? It'd have to be a sort of sort of noise. Well, that's Britain's it? Got Talent, I think. Oh, is it? I, but, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm in my specialist subject area here. Is it? <laughs> I think these rails are completely confected. It's like set-piece arguments that they're having to try and convince their own backbenchers that the coalition isn't united and that actually there's quite a lot of conflict. It reminds me of like when there's a dinner party ruined by one of those couples that turns up and have this huge set piece row only to go home and have rampant sex afterwards. Because <laughs> Clegg was trying to convince us the other week that he doesn't get on that well with Cameron and he actually said there is a certain hardness between us. <laughs> David's normally dressed as Agamemnon when it happens. <laughs> Ed Miliband has only persuaded half. Isn't it about half his MPs to vote? Yeah. And he was elected himself by the alternative vote system. He's not very energising, is he? What are those pasties you only buy at petrol stations when you're a bit tired? What are those? Ginsters. Ginsters. He reminds me of a sort of soggy Ginsters. (laughs) Do you know when he he opens his mouth and tries to speak, it's like there's another mouth inside trying to say something completely different. Perhaps he swallowed his brother. What a horrible thought. There's just such nonsense working about AV on both sides. Like you had, it was Anne Whittakin the other week, and she's passionately in the no campaign, and she's saying this referendum, even if a tiny proportion of people vote, if a majority says that the system should change, it will. And it's like, that's first past the post, Anne. Yeah. That's, that's what you like. But the, the, both sides had nonsense. The former Lib Dem Treasury spokesman, Lord Oakshot, said the no campaign is a pantomime dinosaur with Prescott at the front, Griffin at the back, and Cameron firmly on top all the time. And you think, you have never been to a pantomime in your life. <laughs> campaigning 
for next week's referendum, the Liberal Democrats, Conservatives and Labour are at war over AV in what is threatening to be the biggest split in the Commons since John Prescott and Anne Widdicombe met in the canteen and went Dutch. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. The birther bill is the requirement that any presidential candidate or any other candidate would have to show proof of citizenship. And if they didn't, then they would have to show uh, baptismal, baptismal, baptismal certificate or a certificate of circumcision. So it is something that uh, I was felt very, very uncomfortable with, and I feel that it serves no purpose. So today, I went on record, and I vetoed it. Arizona Governor Jan Brewer explaining her veto of that state's birther bill last night on Fox News Channel, including her own discomfort with the circumcision certificate loophole. Is that what we call it now? Uh, when the Arizona Republic asked supporters of the birther circumcision bill if they plan to try to override the governor's veto, at least one of them wearily said no. So the Mr. President, show me your birth or circumcision certificate bill might be dead in Arizona. But just as the birther's hopes are being dashed in that state, they are coming true in the great state of Louisiana, where a birther bill was introduced just last week that would require candidates for federal office to submit their original birth certificates in order to get on the ballot in Louisiana. And no, there is no weird circumcision certificate loophole in the Louisiana bill, at least not yet. Today, Governor Bobby Jindal's office announced preemptively before that bill has even passed that if it does pass, he would love to sign it. Mr. Jindal's spokesman telling the New Orleans Times-Picayune, quote, if the legislature passes it, we'll sign it. And it's not just Bobby Jindal and the poor, sad Arizona legislature. Birther bills are really happening all over the place. This is no longer an obscure thing for Republicans. Birther bills have been proposed this session in, as far as we can tell, at least these 13 states. Nebraska's bill would actually require the parents of a candidate for president or vice president to have both been American citizens, and it seeks their birth certificates, too. Parents! Constitution be darned, Nebraska wants to see them. Oklahoma's birther bill already passed the Senate there, and there is a public hearing set for the Texas birther bill tomorrow. That ought to be fun. This is what is happening in real state legislatures, in real states. Real lawmakers are introducing, and in some cases moving on, and in Arizona's case, passing legislation that would have the implication of, of keeping or, or trying to keep President Obama off the ballot in that state. And it's ridiculous on the one hand, but even if they don't succeed in keeping President Obama off the ballot, if they do get these things passed into law, they could succeed in diverting his campaign into legal challenges over getting him onto the ballot. So as, as ridiculous as this is, it is possible that this could affect whether or not Mr. Obama is on the ballot in every state in the country, and therefore whether or not he wins a second term. 
There's a new public policy polling, uh, new public policy poll out today uh, of Iowa Republicans. 48% of them say President Obama was definitely not born in the United States. Another 26% of them say they're not sure whether he was born in the U.S. So a total of 74% of Republican voters in Iowa say either President Obama was not born in the United States or they're not sure. 74%. The Republican establishment is at great pains to downplay this birther thing, to say, ah, oh, we don't believe the president isn't a citizen, not for a second, not for a moment, that's weird. But meanwhile, while well, the big shot Republican establishment has been sort of minimizing and winking and nodding at this birther issue, it has taken hold entirely among the party's base. And it has the special convenient added bonus of having a potential real political impact, a real impact on whether or not Mr. Obama is reelected. If Bobby Jindal does sign this thing in Louisiana, or if all goes well during the public hearings in Texas tomorrow, and unless reason prevails in Oklahoma, conceivably, the president really could be kept off the ballot in one or more of these states. Or those Republican officials in those states could try to keep him off the ballot, and he, again, could be diverted into legal challenges in order to try to get his name on there. This is an insane Orly Tate's issue that excites the Republican base like Roswell alien sighting rumors. It is also a means of using public policy, however, to put Republicans' thumb on the scale for the next election. That is also what's happening with voter registration policy. We highlighted this yesterday as Kansas Governor Sam Brownback signed a bill that would make it harder to register to vote in Kansas than anywhere else in the country. This is a trend, actually, and it's not getting nearly enough political attention, particularly from Democrats. According to the Brennan Center, a nonpartisan think tank that studies this stuff, Republican lawmakers in these states, all 37 of them, are proposing legislation that would make it harder to vote or to register to vote in that state. In these 13 states, they are trying to make it really, really hard, tying the ability to vote to the ability to prove, prove being the operative word, one citizenship, one citizenship, a la the Kansas bill, which says essentially you're going to need a birth certificate or a passport in order to register to vote. In other words, say goodbye to the voter registration drive in the park, at your school, at the grocery store, unless you carry your birth certificate with you when you go to the grocery store or walk your dog. Why make it harder to register to vote? Why kill the voter registration drive in America? Well, here's a thought. Making it harder to register to vote means there will be fewer first-time voters in the next elections, fewer newly registered voters. And that has real implications for the Democratic versus Republican part of the world. In the 2008 election, according to our exit polling conducted at the time, 68% of first-time voters voted for Barack Obama. Only 30% voted for John McCain. First-time voters were perhaps particularly energized by Barack Obama in 2008, but they followed the general trend of first-time voters voting for the Democrat. So there is a political impact to all of these Republican proposals to make it harder to register to vote. Fewer first-time voters, and probably, therefore, fewer voters, fewer votes for Democrats, including for Barack Obama in the next election. On the one hand, this stuff is late-night AM radio conspiracy theory, you know, new Black Panthers stealing the election, conspiracy theory, Fox in the afternoon craziness that rewards the most conspiratorial, most insane, fevered rantings of the right-wing base in terms of acorn and, and stolen elections, of which there really is no evidence whatsoever. On the other hand, it has a serious policy implication. This is, this, this is not a federal story. This is not a Washington, D.C. story, and so it gets no national attention. But this is a coordinated effort by the conservative movement and Republican legislators and Republican governors across the country to make it structurally more difficult for Democrats to compete in elections, to tilt elections institutionally against Democrats and Democratic voters.
Does the Democratic Party have a counter strategy? Something's happening on the streets. It's not what I hear, no. It's just what I see. Something's happening at the bar. So, Donald Trump is making noise about running for president. It's absurd. In the end, I don't think it's going to happen. As I'm going to show you, his unfavorables are through the roof. And the problem is the guy's just a red-headed clown, okay? He could, uh, you know, if Ronald McDonald needed to take a coffee break, this guy could fill in for him. But apparently that doesn't hurt you in the Republican Party because he's pulling really well. CNN has him tied with Huckabee at the top of the uh, Republican field of candidates at 19% each. NBC Wall Street Journal poll has him in second place tied with Huckabee at 17%. They have Romney at 21%. Fox News has him a little lower, still coming in fourth, which is very respectable, but overall looks to be first and second in a lot of these polls. Public policy polling has him number two in New Hampshire, uh, pulling down Mitt Romney's huge lead over there. So all of a sudden, you have to start taking Donald Trump a little seriously. Well, I mean, it's got the upside that it's going to be entertaining. It's got the downside that, that our politics has become such a mockery that this clown can have a legitimate shot within the field, at least for the moment being. Now, look, uh, what are his unfavorables? Why do I say he has ultimately no chance of winning? Uh, right now, his favorable rating is 43% uh, overall, okay? His unfavorable is 47%. So a lot of the country knows him. There's no question about that, and that's a huge advantage he has. He has name recognition. Uh, the flip side is a lot of the country thinks he's a clown and has no interest in him being president. Look, I did a long segment on this on MSNBC where we explain how many times his companies have gone bankrupt. It, the whole thing is smoke and mirrors. In a lot of ways, he's an excellent Republican candidate because he claims to be such a great businessman when he has had bankruptcy after bankruptcy. It's based on nothing. It's, it's a mirage. And, uh, and it, he now basically sells his name to other buildings. And so name recognition is the way that he makes his money. So he does this to gin up, you know, media attention. But now that he's, you know, doing so well within the Republican field, I think he's begun to convince himself that he's for real. And look, he, I don't know if he knows what he's getting himself into. He's already incredibly thin-skinned. So somebody wrote an article in Vanity Fair about him. He marked it up and sent it back and said, how dare you write this? Gail Collins of the New York Times, same thing, writes an op-ed uh, letter to the editor I should say, uh, responding to her, saying she's wrong and she has bad grammar. And the guy, some guy wrote, Tim O'Brien, I believe it was, wrote a book about how uh, he was not a billionaire but only a millionaire. He, he tried to sue him for defamation. He, of course, it got thrown out of court. It, it got laughed out of court. But whenever anybody attacks him, after he does vicious attacks on anybody else, he's like, how dare you? But, dude, you're going into a Republican primary. You know what they're going to do to you? They're going to rip your face off. If you're actually in the heat of that primary, we're nowhere near the heat of it right now. Now everybody's playing patty cakes, okay? 
But once you get down to we're about to vote, they're going to bring out all your dirty laundry. Do you know how big Donald Trump's closet is with all those skeletons? It's a walk-in closet. <laughs> okay? They're going to bring out your casino bankruptcies. They're going to bring out how you actually don't build things and you rent out your name. They're, they're going to bring out your ex-wives. They're going to bring out everything. They're going to rip your clown face off. <laughs> okay? I don't think you know what you're getting yourself into, Donald. But look, I'm looking forward to finding out. Okay, so have at it, Hoss. I'm ready to get entertained. Finally, the corporate media's first job in an election season usually involves weeding out the candidates whose ideas they consider too far outside the Beltway consensus or because the candidates don't raise enough money to be viable. The nonstop attention to reality TV star real estate developer Donald Trump is evidence that the rules are what the media make them. Will Trump actually run? That seems unlikely. Does he know what he's talking about? No. But that doesn't stop the press from talking to him, talking about him, or explaining why they're doing this. In the April 24th Washington Post, Dan Balls explained that Trump, quote, continues to question whether the president was born in Hawaii, despite ample evidence that he was. But what he has had to say about real issues deserves as much attention as his birther comments, close quote. Well, Trump's birther views deserve no coverage. His thoughts about real issues deserve pretty much the same. But Balls is actually saying something very different, which is odd, unless you're trying to find reasons to justify the media's peculiar behavior toward Donald Trump. Elsewhere, Texas Republican Ron Paul announced his intention to run in 2012. He was one of the candidates in 2008 media mostly excluded from coverage, despite the fact that he had a core of dedicated volunteers and an impressive ability to raise money. Ron Paul is, in other words, an actual candidate, and is likely to be one again. Will he enjoy even a tiny fraction of the coverage given to Donald Trump? Don't bet on it. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Completely unnecessary birth certificate news now. And Andy, the Kenyan president of the United <laughs> States successfully faked and released his fake American birth certificate this week <laughs> to the relief of everyone who's asleep in the face of the truth. 
That is how many internet posts reported the re-release of Barack Obama's Hawaiian Certificate of Live Birth this week. And the issue of whether or not the president, who was definitely born in the United States, was definitely born here or not, even though he definitely was, has been stoked up recently by Donald Trump in his ongoing will-I-won't-I dalliance with running for president himself. So after the birth certificate was released, you might have expected Donald Trump to eat some humble pie. But if you expected that, then you're clearly not familiar with Senor Trump, because <laughs> he's very much allergic to that particular brand of pie. <laughs> in fact, moments after the birth certificate was released, Trump landed in New Hampshire and went straight to an impromptu press conference where the first things out of his mouth were, Today, I'm very proud of myself, because I've accomplished something that no one else has been able to accomplish. Now, to be honest, I think that's how he starts every day. <laughs> I think he looks into the mirror and repeats that to himself three times before brushing his teeth and ironing his hair. <laughs> and well, I, think, I think the thing that he manages to accomplish every day is seeing himself in the mirror and not screaming. So, <laughs> fair play to him. No one else can do that. He then went on to talk at length about how, how he'd just turned up in a helicopter. And <laughs> what a helicopter it was. It was black and red, and he the best colour for any helicopter in the late 1980s. And... <laughs> It also had Trump emblazoned on the side of it. Um, he, he said he was honoured to have played such a big role in hopefully, hopefully, getting rid of this issue. Now we can have a look, he said. We can have a look at it to see if it's real. He's incredible, Andy. His capacity for bullshit <laughs> would either make him the perfect president or the perfect landfill site. <laughs> I just can't work out which yet. Such a fine line, so often. I'm fascinated by this, uh, this term, birtherism. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes it sound like a branch of philosophy. A school of thought that holds that's where conclusive evidence verifiably exists to prove a known fact. That evidence can be disproved if it is repeatedly and groundlessly rubbished through a sufficient number of media outlets. And that basically, I think, is what John Stuart Mill would have ended up saying if he hadn't popped his clogs, John. It was, he was basically heading in that direction. A President Obama himself had alluded to Donald Trump uh, during his quick press conference to release the birth certificate, referring to him as a carnival barker. And to that I say this. That's future president carnival barker to you! <laughs> Have some f***ing respect! There was a, uh, an article about him on uh, the Al Jazeera website in which the journalist <laughs> described Donald Trump as, quotes, the living embodiment of every degrading aspect of American <laughs> culture. <laughs> He would take that as a compliment. <laughs> but, I mean, it does. You know, when you, th when you read those words, John, and oh, you think of great. his impending presidential bid, the living embodiment of every degrading aspect of American culture, he is going to be very hard to beat, John, with <laughs> that sure behind is. him. That is vote-winning stuff. That should be his campaign slogan. <laughs> Get it's that worked. across a bumper sticker. It's worked before, <laughs> uh, twice in the last three elections. <laughs> Trump... Uh, now also wants uh, the president to release his college records as well. And, you know, I guess President Obama could do that too, but you know, where does this end exactly? Do we want his intimate red medical records as well? Is that enough transparency? Do we want to insert a microscopic camera into his anus just so we can have a look around and check that he's not harbouring any Muslim extremists up there? Is that too much to ask in the pursuit of national security, Andy? And if Obama refuses to do it, the only question is, what's he hiding up there then? <laughs> Just let us put a camera up your ass and prove that you have nothing to hide. I will not accept him as my president, John, until I have seen verifiable footage of his mother and his father humping without using any protection. <laughs> 
on the appropriate date in whenever it was. <laughs> 1960 or whatever. Trump, Trump obviously should also now be subjected to exactly the same level of scrutiny. America should get to see all of Trump's financial records. They should get to see what's underneath his profoundly unsettling hair. My guess is that there's a tattoo of his own face up there. And we should get to see his internet history as well. In fact, that is, that truly is the most telling thing that any of us could demand in the name of transparency from a future leader. True transparency means everyone should have to release their personal internet history. Because I bet, I bet that Donald Trump Googles his own name <laughs> a lot. I bet that's 60% of his searches on the internet. I would, I'd also love to see President Obama's internet history. I, th I think it would be very illustrative to see the internet history of all presidents from now on. If Obama ever placed an online order for ping pong balls, I'd like to see that. I, I'd like to see if he's ever uh, online commentating on a forum about uh, uh, Jonas Brothers blogs under a fake name. I'd like to see if he was hacking into his daughter's Facebook account to check what they're up to. <laughs> I'd like to see if he ever looked up the batting average of Jason Bay against left-handed pitchers and how long he spent looking at that page. I'd like to know if he'd ever seen a video of a skateboarder taking a huge knot shot from a telephone pole and how many times he'd then re-watched that clip. I think that would tell you more about a president's character than any questions about policy. In fact, Andy... I think one debate per presidential cycle should just involve a moderator pulling out a piece of internet history at random from a candidate and simply saying, explain this. <laughs> oh, uh, well, that's a good question. I, I guess I was intrigued to see whether or not Natalie Portman had ever done a nude scene in a movie. <laughs> Very well. And to your opponent, explain this. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that was not a serious inquiry. I just wanted to know hypothetically, whether they made female SS uniforms in my size. <laughs> God, was that, I tell you, uh, 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 was that Nixon and Lyndon Johnson? <laughs> Good spot, Andy. Good spot. Karl Rove, the top political advisor to President George Bush and total c <laughs> c qualified c he he called he has called Trump a joke candidate, but I, I tell you what, Carl. I tell you what, it's nice to have once in a while. Jokes, Carl. <laughs> they're fun. Sometimes they're not in great taste, sure, and sometimes they're completely pointless. But they're nice to laugh at occasionally. And the truth is, Trump would clearly make a catastrophic president, but he could yet offer one of the greatest, funniest, most ridiculous presidential runs in American history. And it would be so sad if he denied the world that kind of pure, uncomplicated joy. <laughs> so well, He doesn't sorry. have all the classic uh, characteristics of a presidential candidate. Um, he's had his worth estimated at $3 billion, but mm -hmm. also has... You know, he's, he's danced the dance with bankruptcy on a yes. number of occasions. He's he also, tangled, yeah. He's also appeared in Home Alone 2. Mm -hmm. He apparently <laughs> failed to vote in New York primary elections for over 20 years, so mm -hmm. massive democracy fan. He also owns the Miss Universe franchise and yes. sells, sells his own brand of vodka. <laughs> That's right. So, are any of those compatible with being president? Well, I've, I've got some more facts for you here, Andy. Trump does not shake hands because he has a fear of germs. Now... That is something of a handicap to running for office. Is he also allergic to babies' heads? Because there is nothing looks more elitist than spraying your hands with disinfectant immediately after touching a potential voter. <laughs> Here's another fact. On April the 7th of this year, Trump filed to trademark the phrase success by Trump. 
for use in selling, and I quote, cologne, perfume, fragrances, aftershave lotions, skin moisturiser, shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, soaps for hand, face and body, body powder, bath oil, bath gel, bath salts and bubble bath. I do hope that, in anticipation of his presidential run, Andy, he's also trademarked failure by Trump as well. <laughs> because if he hasn't, I'm tempted to. And while I'm at it, I might also trademark bankruptcy by Trump too. <laughs> in case I ever want to make a shower gel. As you mentioned, he already has Trump the fragrance and Trump vodka. And again, let's in the future now make sure that every potential presidential candidate has their own line of fragrances. It just makes sense. <laughs> You can tell a lot about a candidate from whether they like to use base notes of sandalwood or not. <laughs> Indecision by Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most telling thing you can know about Donald Trump as a man comes from this exchange he had a couple of days ago in New Hampshire, uh, which I read about it, uh, in an article. I think it really gets across the kind of human being you're dealing with in a very concise, very compact way. I quote... Donald Trump spent a few minutes shaking hands at a Portsmouth diner, but spent little time in conversation. Passing by a table of older men, he waved and said, Why aren't you at work? <laughs> oh, already a great manner for people there, Andy. <laughs> Did he whack them with a stick as well? Or Wh hold a gold <laughs> handkerchief over his nose as he spoke to them? <laughs> anyway, it goes on. We're retired, answered the group of former workers at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. Don't touch Medicare, right? Trump said, moving on without waiting for an answer. <laughs> Trump 2012, Andy. It would be too fun for him not to do this. I do think, John, that uh, having watched the royal family this morning and feeling a uh, fairly uh, overwhelming surge of republicanism mm -hmm. coming up through <laughs> through my body, yeah. not so much... Yeah, I've got nothing against William and, and K-Dog themselves, but... Yeah. Uh, it's more the coverage of it, and just I mean, it does show that there are some things we're not so good at in Britain as a nation anymore, for example, manufacturing or running an economy. But there are some things we are good at, and one of those is polishing small bits of brass. And I, <laughs> I think that has shown, well, yep. possibly world leaders in that. Yep. I guess it wasn't such a great occasion if you're not a fan of highly polished small bits of brass and inherited privilege. But I think what it did show, John, is that when you look at that royal wedding and then you look at Donald Trump, there is only one preferable <laughs> option to that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure there would have been quite the same number of people on the streets to see Donald Trump high-fiving himself in Westminster Abbey. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. When Lou Dobbs came under fire in 2009 for promoting birtherism, most of the media, including Fox News, skewered him for giving credence to the conspiracy theory. Now, that theory's been around for a while. A factor investigated found out it's bogus, but Mr. Dobbs is still engaged. It's just a few cranks out there. It's like when networks bring on the three remaining clanners in America on TV. <laughs> But now that several potential presidential candidates are flirting with and even embracing birtherism, it seems like Fox News is finally jumping on the bandwagon. We could end it simply. Just show it to us Just and it'd be show over. Us the birth certificate. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate that. Just show us the birth certificate. Says, what do you think it. about this birth certificate issue? I mean, what? It has not been my main issue, but it, it kind of does get a little odd here after a while. Can't they just produce it? We move on?
after this morning's birth certificate press conference at the White House prompted everybody on Earth to say, wow, so that happened. MSNBC contributor Goldie Taylor um, was much more loquacious and eloquent than anybody else I know. She posted a remarkable response at thegrio.com. My initial instinct was to go all subterranean homesick blues and just put Goldie's piece on cue cards and have you read it while I shut up. Ultimately, we realized it would be smarter to just let her explain, let her tell it. We've never done this before. It's sort of a guest on air op-ed, but I think this occasion calls for it. My grandmother used to start the story, show me your papers. That's what the police officer said to Major Blackard, her great-grandfather, when he was just 19 years old. Major dug into the trousers of his wallet, patted his jacket, but he couldn't find his billfold. Sir, I done left my wallet, he said. But before he could finish his sentence, the young man was posted against a brick wall, cuffed, and taken to the St. Louis City Jail. Unable to prove his identity, he would spend the next 21 days in a cramped, musty cell. That's where his older brother Matt found him. He had been beaten and was bloodied. Matt returned with Major's employer later that day, wallet and identification card in hand. They needed to post bond, and the police officer needed to see a white face. The year was 1899, and Major Blackard was my great-great-grandfather. The real crime was that Major Blackard was a man of color, living in America in 1899. This morning, when I initially got, you know, the first notification that the president was having to produce his long-form birth certificate and passing it out, you know, by White House staffers, it recalled a really ugly time in history for me. It recalled a time when men of color, when black men specifically, weren't allowed on the street without identification. And here we are with a president of these United States, duly elected by the people of this America. He's being asked to produce his papers. And not just his birth certificate. They've gone on to ask for his college transcripts. Never in our 235-year history have we ever asked a president to prove that he was born on this American soil. Good morning. In a stunning show of unchecked ego, Donald Trump quickly hosted a press conference. He took credit for forcing our president to hand over his birth certificate. The sometime real estate developer, socialite, author, and television personality went on to caution onlookers to let the experts examine the documents as if the president were perpetrating a fraud. Trump didn't even want just the birth certificate. He wanted the president to release his college transcripts. His implication is that Barack Obama was the beneficiary of affirmative action and that he took the place of a more qualified white student. Apparently, graduating magna cum laude from the nation's most prestigious law school and being named editor of the Harvard Law Review, the institution's highest student honor, is just not enough for Trump. But you see, for people like Trump, it never is enough. If he gets on the phone or gets off his uh, basketball court, or whatever he's doing at the time. I mean, he should be focused on OPEC and getting those prices down. As if his place was better on the basketball court. When they tell you that this isn't racial, don't believe them. This controversy was constructed solely as a way to delegitimize the presidency of a black man. Those who question the location of Barack Obama's birth are clearly the same people who would pack up and move out of a neighborhood if somebody like me moved in next door. They are the same people who would believe African-Americans are better suited on the basketball court than in a boardroom. 
when they say they want to take their country back, they mean from us. This is Carter from Denver again. Uh, just one response to the uh, supporting another nominee other than Obama. Uh, I would say if you want to see how Democrats can mess up two nominees, look no further than the 1968 uh, Democratic Convention. I know there's a lot of history behind that, but I couldn't see it going any different if you tried to pit someone else against Obama. Um, it just leave it to the deeply divided party. So I say, instead, you know, have people support leftist, liberal people in their own districts for the next election and try to take back the House. And, you know, hopefully have another four years where we can get some more liberal justices on the Supreme Court. So I'd say that should be the direction we should go in as a party. So, uh, and as a liberal. So thanks for the show, and I look forward to hearing more. Hey, Jay, this is Patrick calling from Holden, Massachusetts, and I was just calling because when I was listening to the Skilla and Charabittis podcast, there was a, you know, talking about Michelle Bachman and how she um, was maybe going to push everybody to the right uh, in the election. Well, um, is there anybody out there on the left, you know, on a progressive side that might actually push, um, you know, Obama to the left a little bit? Uh, maybe an independent voice, uh, a pro- pro- progressive independent voice that might be uh, more um, in line with a progressive point of view. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Thanks a lot and uh, have a great day. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Amit. Um, I'm an intern in primary care medicine working in the Bronx. And I wanted to make an activist call to action. Uh, this year, the Society of General Internal Medicine is having its conference in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, it's the largest conference of its sort for um, all kinds of physicians, general practitioners, and specific. And there'll be a white coat demonstration in protest of anti-immigration laws this Thursday, May 5th from 1 to 2 p.m. on the Arizona State Capitol building and certainly hope that anyone who's able to come out and uh, stand in solidarity with us uh, can join us. Uh, certainly anyone's welcome. Thanks a lot for getting helping get the word out and uh, keep up the good work, Jay. Thanks. Hey, Jay. How you doing? This is Patrick from Sequesta, Florida. I just got finished with listening to your episode on the oil spill anniversary on May 1st. I agree with you 100% on the situation having to do with the oil and also with coal, but I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I disagree with you completely when it comes to nuclear energy. Uh, the 50 to 100,000 Americans per year die from breathing in particulate air pollution, and the biggest contributor of that is burning coal, quote-unquote clean coal, which doesn't really exist. I, I, I just think it's very irresponsible to speak out against nuclear power when nuclear power puts an almost total elimination to this 
particulate air pollution. And the problem that's happening within, in Japan, the problem that happened in Chernobyl, these are with old, almost ancient nuclear reactor designs. The new reactors, it, it, it's, it's, a to, it's almost total reduced nuclear waste capabilities and almost no possibility of proliferation of nuclear weapons from these facilities. So, again, I agree with, I agree, I agree with your points on having to do with coal and oil, but I, I, I disagree with you 100% when it comes to nuclear power. It's, it's clear that nuclear is much cleaner. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. In terms of responding to the argument about nuclear power, I am uh, far from uh, an energy expert, but I did. Uh, I, I worked in climate change for a couple of years, and, uh, and so I, I will tell you what my old boss would have said in response to this. And he, uh, you know, right or wrong, He's incredibly earnest, uh, I can say that for sure, and he's, he's spent about the last 10 years of his life studying energy uh, from the perspective, not, not on safety at all, just on climate. And, and I think that, that is the correct perspective to come at from it. And so, you know, a lot of people think that nuclear is, uh, is a good idea for the climate, and this is his argument against it. Uh, he has said um, on many occasions that if he thought nuclear energy was the answer to climate change, he would approve the construction of a, of a nuclear plant right next door to his house. You know, that's that's how much he cares about um, about solving climate change, and uh, and the reason that he thinks that it is not the answer is because of the cost. Basically, the way he describes it is the most expensive way on the planet to, you know, boil a pot of water. And, uh, and so we use nuclear fuel rods to boil water. The water turns to steam. The steam turns turbines and generates electricity. And the way he describes it basically is we might as well be burning $20 bills to boil water and, uh, and generate that steam. The argument being that with a finite amount of time to solve the climate change issue and a finite uh, number of resources, uh, those dollars could be spent better on other projects that are equally or more effective than nuclear rather than investing in nuclear, which is prohibitively expensive, takes a long time to build, and so on. So I found that argument to be convincing for me. Uh, and, and so when I discuss nuclear, uh, the safety issues don't even enter into the conversation for me. Although, of course, it's incredibly reasonable for them to enter into the conversation, especially after what happened in Japan. I mean, it's it's reasonable to be concerned about that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I think that you don't even have to get to that point in the discussion before you decide, well, maybe maybe our finite number of dollars can be invested uh, somewhere else. Finally, I want to continue to encourage you guys to donate to the New Leaders Council. This is an organization that uh, I've joined and become uh, very supportive of recently. Uh, we have, you know, one basically, you know, one fundraising push every year that helps fund 
all of their projects for the year. Their main drive, as they explain it, and as I've experienced personally, is to uh, teach and, and train the next generation of progressive leaders. Basically, what they want to do is you know, take people who are interested in politics, uh, you know, interested in getting involved, uh, or who are already involved, and make them better and more effective at doing what they're doing. So each year, they have hundreds of people go through this program in cities all across the country. And of course, it takes a little bit of money. Uh, it's it's a it's a organization run by volunteers for the most part. Um, you know, they have a I think a little bit of a central staff, but uh, at least in terms of the people who ran the organization in Chicago, where I have been attending their programs, um, everyone's been working and organizing it for free. They volunteered to do it. So, um, you know, that, that gives you a sense of how the money gets spent. Uh, you know, they, they definitely squeeze, uh, you know, every bit of effectiveness out of those dollars. So if you have five or 10 bucks that you can throw uh, towards this organization, I would really uh, appreciate it. If you've been listening to the show consistently over the last few weeks and you've heard me mention them several times before, hopefully you can take that as evidence of you know how serious and committed I am to the organization and and you know the degree to which I'm encouraging you uh, to be supportive. If it if if it was uh, an offhand thing, I wouldn't have mentioned it for you know three weeks in a row now. So to do that, go to uh, this Bitly link that I've set up: bit.ly bitly slash support nlc. That's support NLC for the New Leaders Council. That takes you to a page where uh, you know people are buying tickets for a local Chicago fundraiser. As I've mentioned before, it is a national organization. Basically, all the money gets pooled, uh, anyways. And uh, and so even if you're not going to come to the fundraiser because the vast majority of you don't live anywhere near here, um, you can still just put in you know five bucks or ten bucks uh, to donate directly. And finally, I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Uh, Bob M. signed up for a leftist membership, paying for a full year in advance back on September 29th. And David P. signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on October 12th. Huge thanks to Bob and David and all the members and donors who make the show possible. Obviously, I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Spread the word about the show by sharing our new YouTube clips that are going up at youtube.com slash the best of the left. Stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online to friends and neighbors uh, by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of those details are always posted at the show notes at the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. The now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet Shadow bases to fall